I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. Today is a very special episode of the podcast. One of the things I love best about Kobo is that we don't just have people who love books as customers of Kobo, we also tend to attract fanatical readers as employees. So while I love every episode of Kobo and Conversation that we do, this one is special to me because rather than authors, I'll be joined in the studio by Kobo staff who will share their must-read books for the holiday season. I love it because the books come from every possible genre, which means there's something for everyone, and because the people giving you the picks are from every part of the business, not just full-time book people, but also engineers and designers and marketers and managers. You can treat this whole episode as a gift guide. If you're on the hunt for a book for that special someone or would like to add something to your own library, let these experts be your guide. I use this to fill out my holiday reading list so that I have a giant stack of stuff ready to go for the last couple of weeks of the year when I take a little bit of vacation. And so it is deeply valuable to me as well. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Courtney. I'm the content management specialist for audiobooks at Kobo. And the book I recommended this holiday season is Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. All right, so tell me all about it. What makes this book so great? The book switches between three stories of three different women, a mother looking for fulfillment outside of a sexless marriage, a teen engaged in an inappropriate relationship with her teacher, and then a woman in an open relationship. It's all very interesting, and the common thread is the chasing of desire. Okay. And how did you find out about this book? Actually, some individuals in the office that received an ARC for it thought of me immediately and uh, sent it over to my desk. So it's nice that we look so you, out for each other. So you actually get preferred treatment. People yes. are like, this is the book I, for you. I'm very vocal about what I, what I enjoy. And so give me a sense of kind of the, of the, like the tone, the, you know, kind of the color of the book. Yeah, I think it's actually journalism, but it reads like really juicy fiction. And I think it's a lot of quiet, everyday stories of female lives, but, you know, often go unspoken. So they're very interesting. And who would be the person who you would give this book to? What's the perfect recipient for this book? I think anyone who gravitates towards uh, strong female voices. And is there another author who's like this author? Is there an author that kind of provides a bridge to this book? Yeah, so I referenced the idea that this journalism really reads like fiction. So I thought of Mary Gateskill, specifically her book, Bad Behavior, as a perfect bridge to this. Fantastic. Courtney, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Carmen Basrab. I'm the content operations manager at Kobo here. And the book that I recommend this year for Christmas is a book called More Than This by Patrick Ness. Okay, first of all, tell us what a content operation manager does. So I manage what's on the store, make sure that sales rights are correct, that the files are working properly, that there's no errors, that everything is available for purchase where it should be and to everyone who wants to buy it. And tell us about the book. So Patrick Ness is very quickly become one of my favorite authors. This book is sort of like a desolate, bleak fiction that's kind of light on sci-fi, but also a bit of dystopia. I came to this after reading Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. I was looking for a bit more along the same lines. 
But Patrick is also an LGBT author, and I was looking for something with characters that were gay, but that wasn't the only thing that they were. And this one turned out to be, it was just amazing. It was dark, it was a page turner. I just could not put it down. And how did you find this book, or how did this book come to you? I think I just searched online for like books by this author, characters like this, and I ended up on a weird Reddit thread where I asked a bunch of people that, this is what I'm looking for, what can you recommend? And someone mentioned it, I saw the cover, and I was like, yep, that's, I'm gonna read that. And so you would describe it as dystopian with a little view to the future, and is the mood of it dark? Is it forbidding? Is it light? Like, what's sort of it's the feel of it? pretty dark. Like, the very first line is, here is the boy drowning, and he dies. And then the rest of the book happens, and you see where he woke up. Is he in hell? Is he not? And you realize that he's not, but where is he? And it's a whole mystery of trying to figure out where he is, why no one else is there, what happened, why didn't he die, or did he? It's that sort of fiction, and it also flashes back to his life before he died. So he kind of looks over what happened, what led him to these events, and what made him who he is. Okay, this sounds really good. <laughs> who would be interested in a book like this? I think people who are looking for like YA fiction that is a bit more on the older end of YA fiction, they want that bit of like light sci-fi, but not like total get into science fiction aliens and that sort of thing, but just a little bit of like, this isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. What's going on with this? Who enjoy a sort of bleakness, who d aren't necessarily looking for a happily ever after ending, but don't mind the process to get there. And those who are looking a bit more about exploring what life is like for this sort of character. Got it. Who is another author who you would line up next to this author? Well, I mentioned him earlier. I think Neil Gaiman is one that's very similar. He goes a bit more into magical realism than Patrick Ness does, although Ness has some other also fantastic books that are along a similar vein. So I would say that if you enjoy Neil Gaiman, you'd pretty much like this, but it's also a bit more of a YA version. And if you like this one, there are other books that he's written as well that you get to dive into as well. Oh yeah, he's got another one called The Rest of Us Just Live Here, which is about the people who aren't the Harry Potters of their world, living with things like that going on. Oh, that sounds amazing. All right, thank you so much. Thanks. I'm Allison, I'm the Director of Business Operations at Kobo, and the book I'm recommending this year is called Wilder Girls by Rory Power. It's the kind of book that I could not put down, and like from the moment I picked it up, every waking moment that I wasn't reading it, I was just thinking about when I could get it, pick it up next and keep going. And so tell me about this book. What makes it great? So it's a book about three best friends who are living at a boarding school on an island off of the coast of New England. But 18 months before the events of the book, the school's put under quarantine. All the girls and all the teachers start becoming sick with this disease they call the tox. First, the disease killed off all their teachers, and then it starts slowly transforming the students, changing their bodies in some like really weird and grotesque ways. And they're left to fend for themselves, um, to try and uncover the truth of what's going on, what's happening to them, and what's happening to the world around them with whom they have no contact anymore. Uh, okay, this sounds amazing. Would you put it in the category of fantasy? Is it magical realism? How would you genre it? Yeah, by definition, it's technically YA horror, but it definitely kind of toes that line of magical realism, science fiction realism crossover. But it's also a really more so about the power of female friendship and the lengths you'll go to protect the people you love and your chosen families 
when the institutions that you're used to protecting you have, have failed you. Okay. And is it in the spectrum of YA, is it at the older end of YA? Is it kind of that YA adult crossover? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, again, because it's also kind of a little bit horror, a little bit body horror, it's the older end of YA and definitely very applicable to adult audiences as well. Who would be interested in this book? Who would you give this book to? This book is for anyone who kind of came out of that wave of dystopian fiction we've kind of seen for the last decade. Mm -hmm. If you were really into The Hunger Games and Divergent and are looking for a little more of a realistic version of that dystopian thing, you know, that's more in tune with the very current threats of climate change and body autonomy and all of those issues. It's very much in in your realm of expertise, if that's what you're into. And in the question of people who would like this book would Mm -hmm. also like this book, Mm -hmm. what would you use to bridge this book to another one? If you really liked Never Let Me Go, This is very similar boarding school, kind of dystopian, not really sure what's going on. If you've just always been jonesing since high school for like a feminist Lord of the Flies, this is really gonna hit you there. And again, if you liked that magical realism, science fiction thing of something like Lauren Bukes' Broken Monsters, then you're gonna love this as well. It even sounds like some of the uh, Chiana Melville uh, stuff, like the scar of that sort of morphing biology and yeah, you know, and kind of twisting bodies. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Anytime. We have heard some amazing selections from Kobo staff uh, over the course of this podcast. I'm going to do a bit of a lightning round of just a couple of books that came up on my reading list over the course of the year. And they are specifically designed to help fill holes in a gift list for some especially hard to buy for readers. So one of the things that we were a little short on in recommendations uh, this year were business books. So I'm going to pull two forward. Uh, The first one by Gregory Zuckerman is The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolutions. Uh, he was the founder of Renaissance, almost certainly one of the most spectacularly successful hedge funds in history. Uh, incredible returns over uh, a very long period of time. And, uh, and since then, members and partners of that have also dabbled in politics, but they are certainly the blueprint for which uh, quantitative investing, algorithmic-driven investing, uh, has come from. And so this book takes uh, it from his earliest days through his early career, how he started to uh, how he started to get an investing, and then the rise of Renaissance as this incredible force in the financial markets. And so for that uh, that person who has money in the markets, likes investing, is interested in finance, reads the business section, this is, uh, this is a book that you can wrap up and give to them. Number two, for people who are running a business, who are managing people, and who are interested in uh, what I think sometimes pejoratively get called the softer side of management, uh, this is a book by Ben Horowitz, he also wrote one of my favorite business books of all time, The Hard Things, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. His new book is called What You Do Is Who You Are: 
how to create your business culture. And he really goes after that idea that business culture comes from you know, having a set of mission and vision and values up on the wall, or that it's you know, done through team meetings and town halls and gets into the nuts and bolts of how business culture really gets created. How do we create the dynamics that set the expectation for how people treat each other? How do we create the internal loops of feedback and responsibility that allow people to function well together? And how do you take a lot of different actions by managers over the course um, of the working day and the working year and solder that together into something that really makes an effective team uh, that embodies the kinds of values that you want them to have. And so that is What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture by Ben Horowitz. My name is Zach Sandor Kerr. I'm the director of audiobooks growth here at Kobo. And what's your book? Well, it was hard to choose because 2019 was a really fabulous year for audiobooks and specifically audiobook memoirs by some iconic figures. You know, the Beastie Boys, Prince, Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye, Michelle Obama, they all came out with some fabulous books this year and were extremely powerful as audiobooks. But the one that I want to talk to you about is Me by Elton John. It's a memoir kind of that tracks his like humble beginnings through his rise to stardom, his struggles with substance abuse, kind of tracking through the AIDS crisis. It's fantastic. And is it first narrated by him? So he narrates the prologue and epilogue, mm -hmm. um, but the narrator really brings his life, his voice to life. It's it's excellent. Because that becomes so essential, especially in the, in the memoirs. Like even if it's not the person who's the book about, they have to somehow capture a bit of the life and the character of the person and, and have it line up well. Absolutely. And and this me is is fantastic because it does just that. It really it really kind of captures, I think, the words on the page and gets that voice across. I, by the end of the book, when it switches to Elton John's actual voice, I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what Elton sounds like. Because <laughs> I had grown so accustomed to and really kind of fond of that, the narrator. And was kind of the expression of, or the tone of the book, did it kind of hang together with Elton John's life? You know, he's, you know, he's such a big figure. He's so exuberant. There's so much color around him. Did it manage to capture the person? Totally, yeah. I mean, it was it was great. I mean, music memoirs are so fun. Rock and roll memoirs are so much fun to listen to because there's this kind of, the, the timeline of events as described, you can kind of match them to the music, which then kind of pairs it to like what you were doing at that moment in time. And so there's really this kind of neat chronology that you can follow along. And, you know, it just kind of some of the stories, he's so funny and pokes fun at himself. He's, you know, a lot of kind of self-effacing humor, but talks a lot about, you know, his contemporaries and like pranking Rod Stewart or, you know, christening Freddie Mercury with a drag queen name, you know, his friendship with John Lennon. He like wouldn't let Andy Warhol into his hotel room one time. Like there are all these great stories about the people and, and just this kind of amazing, weird, wonderful rock star life that he lived. 
Who would you give this audiobook to if you were giving it as a gift? I would give this one to anyone who likes his music, who has kind of been a fan of Elton John. I mean, even if you, all of you know is the Lion King soundtrack, you know, like, I think that you will like this. I often kind of try to give recommendations through the lens of like, what about someone who's new to audiobook listening? And Elton John's memoir is a great one for anyone who is, you know, wondering about whether they want to get into audiobooks because it really is a great reflection of, of how wonderful and enjoyable the medium can be. And what's another audiobook or another memoir that's a good jumping off point to get to this one? To get to this one, I mean... I love most, not a memoir, but I love most stuff by Neil Gaiman. The Graveyard Book is a fabulous first listen for anyone who's brand new to audiobooks and trying to get into it. The Hobbit is also one that I really strongly recommend to people who are new to audiobooks. So you'd recommend, like if you're starting off in audiobooks just as a category, those are books that you would, those, uh, that you would get people to start with. Definitely. And if someone is a memoir fan, what's a... If somebody said, oh, I really love this memoir, what's mm -hmm. the one that you would then say, okay, then you're going to love me, Life of Elton John? If they, if they like any, any rock and roll story, then me is for them. If they like hearing kind of about the weird and wonderful lives of people who were rock stars in the 1970s and 80s. Well, that's a neat book because you can come at it from so many different angles. You can be an Elton John fan. You can be sort of in that like 1970s, 1980s world of pop culture generally. Or you can be a biography fan and just want a really well-told story totally. of, of a very interesting life. Totally, exactly. If you're, I mean, if you're there, if you're here for good storytelling, it's a good one. If, uh, as you say, rock and roll is just such a fun place to to spend your your time listening. Zach, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, I'm Michelle Katz. I'm the director of original content here at Kobo, and I'm going to be talking about Atomic Habits by James Clear. What makes this book so great? Why do people need to read it? So. You're familiar, of course, with the late and great Anthony Bourdain. Yes. Superstar chef, amazing author. He has nothing to do with this book, but there was a quote <laughs> that I read a couple of years ago. Indulge me in this. Okay. So he said, I understand there's a guy inside me who wants to lay in bed, smoke weed all day, and watch cartoons and old movies. My whole life is a series of stratagems to avoid and outwit that guy. And I think... You know, that sentiment is something that resonates with a lot of people because we've got our human brain that wants things. It's ambitious. It's motivated. And we see there's long-term goals that we want to achieve. And then we have our lizard brain, which just wants to eat and sleep and screw and dopamine just all the lie time. Just right? lie on that warm rock all exactly. day. Yes. And, and that's the brain that keeps us alive. So, you know, culturally, we're obsessed with like the virtuousness of self-discipline. But in reality, that's really hard to just say, well, be more self-disciplined. Well, how? Mm -hmm. Right. So... Atomic Habits kind of addresses that head on and it looks to psychology and biology and neuroscience and it's sort of, it's very practical, very applicable and it's just sort of things that you can do to flip that and take those forces that normally work against you and make them kind of work for you 
And in general, I think the thesis of it, it kind of comes down to the title, Atomic Habits, right? so small, small things. He talks about the idea of 1% better every day. It's more about trajectories than it is about making like huge change. If you make a huge change for one day and then you go right back to your old trajectory, you're in a worse spot. Mm -hmm. So it's about, you know, making change easier for yourself by breaking it down really, really small changes where you barely even notice that you've changed. And over time, you accumulate and you can accomplish really great things. This has become both a very interesting field of study mm. and a place where we've seen a number of interesting books come out lately. You know, there <laughs> was The Power of Habit and a lot of them starting to look at the construction of habits and the creation of mm. habits mm -hmm, for yourself. Mm -hmm. As you say, just, okay, I'm going to stop all of these bad things and I'm going to yes. start doing all of these good ones. And the, like, the cycle of sort of failure and shame and regret that, mm -hmm, you know, that mm -hmm. powers it. So what makes this particular good book so good at helping to create those kinds of changes? So one thing that I would say about this book compared to other ones that I've read, like you said, there's a lot of great content in this area. This book is tight. There is, you know, uh, sorry to jump ahead, it's in the self-improvement genre. Yeah, yeah. If you are a reader of that genre, you'll know sometimes we've got a TED Talks worth of content that is now filling up a whole book. <laughs> and I would say this book, I was... I don't know what you mean. Of course. Do you mean that there are some books <laughs> that are actually filled out? <laughs> yeah. So, so this book, when, when you look at it, um, I think although it gives the word count on the site. Very helpful. It's around 80,000 words, but a, a lot of that is back matter. It's citing, it's indexes, it's additional stuff. You can get through this book in an evening. It is really, really tight, and it's just so hands-on and easy to apply. He gives you just enough of the science to kind of, you know, make you trust him, mm -hmm. but it's not overloaded with that. And I think if you are someone who is having trouble being motivated, having to read a 400-page book about habits might be hard, right? Like, it might be hard to get through that. So this is, it's so accessible, full of really interesting examples. And every, at the end of every chapter, he sort of has this little, these four components of of building a good habit or breaking a bad habit. And it's so tightly summarized and I just think it's so easy to apply. So even if your lizard brain basically has complete control of <laughs> you, all you, you have yeah. to do is fight out one, you know, <laughs> yeah. one evening of reading and you can, uh, exactly. you, you can start to wrestle it back into its place. Yes. So who would you buy this book for? Who would be interested in this book? So I would say it's it's really for anyone who, who knows that they want more for themselves, but they find themselves constantly fighting against it. It's not necessarily for people who are still trying to find what they want, but it's for people that they have a goal and they're having a really hard time pushing themselves. Like they know they're mm -hmm. the problem. It's not necessarily like external forces, it is internal forces. And are there other books that would that are like this that would sort of act as a bridge to it? Or if somebody liked a particular book, you could recommend this to them? I would say um, if you're into kind of the life hacking space, mm -hmm. um, like Tim Ferriss, authors like that, 
it is really like, here's some cool things that you can do to kind of manipulate your own body and brain into doing these things. So it fits nicely in the life hacking space. But I would say this is a really good intro book. So I think this could act as a gateway to things like The Power of Habit, a little more in depth, mm -hmm. um, you know, a little bit more sciency. So yeah, I think it, it can act as a great gateway. Um, and then also a gateway to all that stuff that you actually want to do. And that's it, what I like about this is that it is it's taking a realistic view of how behavior changes as opposed to i think if you look at the last 20 years of self-help there's been a lot of here i'm i'm going to tell you all of the things that you have to do now you just have to go ahead and do it exactly yeah uh, just uh, do it <laughs> yeah and now it's like well here here's why changing habits is hard mm -hmm. here's how you wired in the ones that you have and now yeah, here both acknowledging that it's difficult to change the to the things that you want to do but also starting to break it down as you mm -hmm. say into okay let's let's start with this let's grow it a little bit at a time let's build some momentum let's get some positive feedback loops going so that you can uh, start to shift your behavior in different ways yeah exactly and i think there's a lot of um it, it's a little bit more dated now right like like you said there's a lot of science and study being applied in this area but so much of like you know when i was growing up it was like do the same thing for 14 days and you will have a habit and it's just these arbitrary yeah. like yep. do you know what i mean and so this this is a really great just look at it's looking at those forces so you go oh it's been 14 days what do i uh, you know and i i haven't it's not a habit. I must be broken. What's the point? Um, mm -hmm. But this is, he, he actually addresses that specific thing in the book. So I, I don't want to give too much of the content away. I don't okay. know where the copyright <laughs> limitations are on here. But um, yeah, that's, that's another point that he addresses really nicely. Amazing. Atomic Habits by James Clear. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Elizabeth, and I'm a Publisher Operations Coordinator here at Kobo. The book I'm recommending this holiday season is Trick Mirror by Gio Tolentino. And what makes this book so great? Why should people read this? So Gia Tolentino is, I've had her described to me before as like one of the best writers on the internet and I completely agree. She is able to like weave different, it's a book of essays just basically about like living life in like the 2010s and kind of like the contradictions and how like when things like don't sit as like perfectly like neat as you think they do, but she's able to like, so she has essays about like growing up in a mega church in the South and then also like has like then talked about like her experiences like, with different like drug use, sexual assault and like on her university campus and how like and what that is like now coming back as like a reporter learning about that weddings and wedding culture. She just has like an amazing way of bringing these like very topics that have a lot of contradictions and kind of trying to make sense of it but she doesn't always like tie it up in a neat way which is kind of nice because it's kind of like what life is and are these articles written in other places and turned into a book or is this new writing particularly for it's all book? new writing so she's a writer for the new yorker but mm -hmm. this is all like like i think it's nine like brand new essays how would you describe the the style of writing dark light funny serious what's the what's the tone it's light but it gets slowly slowly like heavier but you're not mm -hmm. noticing how heavy it is because you're so like wrapped up in how wonderful of a writer she is and even just like if you if you just like step away from like the actual substance her writing style is absolutely beautiful fantastic yeah. and is there is there a through line of any kind through the essays or is each one really a distinct thing that you could sit read on its own and then pick up later and read another one you can definitely sit like 
put it down, like read one essay, put it down. But I saw her at Hot Docs earlier this year and her kind of like idea at the end of like every essay, she's like, I don't know. She's like <laughs> just kind of giving an idea of like just kind of put like throwing something out there. And she's like, I don't have any like conclusions, but this is just kind of like what I'm thinking. So. And so it's more observational than analysis yeah. in that way. Okay, yeah, but so. there is definitely like the analytical like part of it, but she's not making any like grand like conclusions. Got it. Who's the kind of person who you would give this to? Who'd be the perfect recipient for this book? Basically like all my friends, anyone who exists like on the internet, I would say is a good person to yep. give this to. Basically anybody like in like that 20, like that, that millennial like age range, I think this is a great book of essays for, but also that doesn't mean that anybody older or younger like wouldn't be able to identify. And who are other authors or what are other books that act as a good bridge to this one? I'd say if you like Roxane Gay's writing, Joan Didion's writing, uh, if you like Durga Chubos's writing, these are all like very similar. Um, also like Sachi Cool and the kind of like, like the sassy like and like the writing mm -hmm. i'd say as well if you like zadie smith's like nonfiction, i'd say it's also okay so lots of on-ramps to this, yeah, this uh, yeah. you can come at it from a lot of uh, from a lot of different places mm -hmm. and because there's different essays like you know you can pick and choose like what kind of is like speaking to you at the moment and as a journalist you could presumably go online read one of her stories in the in the new yorker mm -hmm. get a sense of whether you like the tone and the style yeah. and then use that as a as a gateway into yeah fantastic totally. all right thank you so much thank you hi i'm laura and i work on the co-burning leaf team as author engagement specialist and what's your book um so my book is the most fun we ever had by claire lombardo tell me a bit about it so the book kind of centers around marilyn and david as uh, so they're a couple who fell in love in the 1970s it kind of begins at the backyard wedding of their daughter, Wendy, but it really chronicles their whole lives. Um, it flashes back to them raising their daughters over the years, and then back to present day where um, a child that one of their daughters gave up for adoption comes back into their lives and kind of like tips everything on its head. And so this is fiction? Yes. Okay. It's literary and, fiction. And give me a sense of the tone of it. So it's really yeah like i said literary fiction it kind of explores themes of love family relationships um and it's really beautifully written it's almost like poetic the way the author talks about so family. very descriptive very the you know the author is playing with language loves language that kind yes, of thing yes yes definitely a love of language and you kind of see that in the way um marilyn and david talk to each other they kind of play around with words and language yeah Excellent. And who would be interested in this book or who would you give this book to? Mm -hmm. So the book would appeal to anyone who loves authors like Celeste Ng or Elizabeth Stroh or anyone who's looking for a page turner full of family drama. It's also being made into an HBO series with Amy Adams. So if you're f interested in reading books before the TV show comes out, you might be interested. Oh, very in important. It. Yes. yes. You've got to get your own version yes. before the video <laughs> version comes available. So would you consider this to be a book for somebody who loves literary fiction in general? Is it a good, uh, it sort yeah. of sits well in that category? Mm -hmm. And because it is the holiday season, also a great time for family drama. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, yeah. you're, if you're already in family drama, then you can have a little yeah, bit more of it. At least you can escape into someone else's family drama. Excellent. <laughs> or if you just don't feel like you have enough, then you can, you can <laughs> have an extra, extra helping. Yeah. Who's 
another author who you would who you would compare this to, or who's another uh, another book that sort of lines up with this? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have compared it to Jonathan Franzen, um, but I really haven't read that much of his work. So I would compare it to um, any of Celeste Ng's book, or um, yeah, Elizabeth Strope as well. Does this author have other books as well? Um, no, this is her debut. Debut author. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And is there an audiobook? There is an audiobook. Okay. So you could really go either way. If you so if you are going to family events in the car <laughs> and you have time to kill, you can get yourself ready for family drama yes. by listening to family drama on your way to your own family drama. Yes, exactly. Perfect. Thank you so much. No problem. Hi everyone, my name is Marina. I am the publisher operations coordinator for Kobo Writing Life, which is Kobo's self-publishing platform. Today I'm here to talk about the wonderful book called The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. And I would say this book is a fantasy slash sci-fi sci story that would be absolutely wonderful for uh, readers who really enjoyed Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane or Carlos Ruiz Zafon's uh, The Shadow of the Wind. And so tell me a bit about this book. What goes on inside yes. it? Yes. So this book is essentially a book about stories. The plot begins with a character that finds a book in a library and upon reading these stories, it's a book of short stories, he realizes that one of the short stories is about a very specific moment in time in his life from his childhood. So in his childhood, he stumbles upon this drawing of a door in a very random alleyway, just out of the blue, he sees this drawing of a door, and when he was a child, he sees it, but he doesn't open the door. And then when he f reads the story in the book, the story hints that there was something behind that door. And so he spirals from there, uh, trying to find out more about the book, uh, going after information about the author, and from there the story develops. One thing that I really, really wanted to share about this book, um, there's actually another author uh, who did a very brief review of it on uh, Twitter. Her name is Catherine Locke, and she explained this book in a way that I thought was so fascinating and I hadn't heard it before. She put it in this perspective. So she says, Erin Morgenstern did something that's very unique in the sense that she makes the reader work for the story, which I personally love. So what she does is she gives you all of the short stories from the book that the character finds in the library, and it's up to the reader to then have all of these stories and put them together uh, to, find, to try and find their way around the story and find the plot. So she's basically trusting the reader to take it upon themselves and build and basically build a puzzle and uh, solve what's happening in the story. And it's really beautiful. It's definitely the kind of book that you don't want to read in a rush. You want to take your time with it, but super re rewarding and very magical. And because there are a number of moving parts in it, yes. is it the kind of thing that you do want to read continuously so that you have it all in your head? Or does the, the episodic story structure make it something that you can pick up and put down? You can pick it up and put down, but I find it hard to believe that you would because it's such a compelling book. Oh, I don't okay. think that you will want to put it down. But yeah, you can absolutely do that way as well. And give me a sense of what's the, the tone or the, uh, the feeling of the book? I wouldn't say that it's 
dark, but it has a lot of magic and a lot of mystery to it. So a bit of the book is a bit of a heist, I would say, with uh, the character trying to locate uh, information and more clues about this book and this author. And then you have the more fantastical, almost folkloric aspect of it, which is why I thought Neil Gaiman fans would really enjoy it. So you have those two sides to the story. You had a bit of a mystery heist, and then you have the fairy tale, folkloric type of uh, tone. And who are some other authors or some other books that you would compare this to? Um, I would say jumping into the audiobook actually. Mm -hmm. um, if you really like, for example, narrations by Jim Dale, he did uh, the narration for her previous book. I think it's a similar tone in the sense that you get so absorbed in the story that you if you feel like you're there in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so stories like that. But I would say definitely The Shadow of the Wind and An Ocean at the, end of the, at the End of the Lane would be the best comparisons that I would have. All right. And so that's The Starless Sea by, the Starless sea, yes. by Aaron Morgenstern. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Vignesh, and I am a digital marketing specialist um, at Kobo on the acquisitions team. Tell me about your book. The book that I would recommend this holiday season is uh, Chameleon Aura by Billy Chapada. Tell me about this book. What's happening in it? What makes it so great? So Chameleon Aura is actually a poetry book, right? It's written by Billy Chapada, but it kind of focuses on looking within yourself, growing as a person, and healing. It's pretty much all about like creating and keeping an aura that is bright and colorful for yourself, as Fantastic. the title would say. And give me a sense of the, the style of poetry. How, um, uh, how does it read? It's very simple and like not like a traditional haiku or like structured. Sure. Very like very free, kind of like free flowing poetry, very simple, kind of in very small tidbits. Mm -hmm. So it's easily digestible and it kind of, it doesn't give you like a self-help feel, but it makes you like reflect on like simple words having such a deep, deep meaning. And so each one is thought provoking on its own as, yeah. a, as an individual poem. Yeah. And how did you come to this book? How did you find out about it? Um, it was actually really funny. Um, I, I am like an avid reader of like poetry. Mm -hmm. And when I started reading on my Kobo Forma, so I started like just reading the same books that I already had as hardcovers, but on my Forma because I wanted to take them around. And when I, when I purchased like another book of poetry, mm -hmm. this came up as a recommended title. So the recommendations work. That's yeah, good. So the recommendations really worked. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Cause it was like, it was a new book. Um, it came out, I think in March or mm -hmm. April. And so I just like, I was like, okay, I'll use my boomerang, downloaded it. And yeah, then went down the rabbit hole of like looking like, cause I really liked the book. So then, you know, read up on the author, mm -hmm. followed him on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like engraved in this world. So who would you give this book to if you were giving it as a gift? It's actually really funny because like I wouldn't entirely just recommend it to people who like poetry. I would also recommend it to people who like self-help, self-improvement, like people who mm -hmm. like Mark Manson and um, like Rachel Hollis, like even those types of like people who like those styles of books from those authors can really take a lot from a book like this. But it just kind of like wraps it nicely in like a poetic style. Well, and, and what I think a lot of people don't know is how much the, the poetry category has kind of exploded over the last couple of years. So you've got poets like 
Ruby Carr, who have these huge you know, followings on Instagram, like they're using different media to get poetry out in front of people. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a new generation of poetry fans who's been grown up. And one of the things they're starting to do is look around and say, okay, who else should I be reading? What else should I be looking at? So for uh, if anybody has any of those people on their holiday gift list, this sounds like a perfect choice. Oh, 100%, like Rupi Carr, Michael Faudet, Lang Leave, all these people who are uh, write poetry and are prominent on social media, this is kind of the book for them. Excellent. That's The Chameleon Aura by Billy Chapata. Yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. So hi, my name is Christina Mendez and I am a marketing manager here at Kobo for email and web. And tell me about the book. Yes. So for me, I think if there is one book that you should definitely read this holiday season or buy, buy for somebody this holiday season, it is More Than Enough by Elaine Welteroth. And tell me about this book. What is it and why should people read it? Um, so before we can go into the book a little bit, I probably I think a lot of people might not know who Elaine Welteroth, Welteroth is. Okay. I mean, looking at you, I think you're definitely up on Project Runway. For sure. I am. 100% sure. yeah. up on Project One. Right? I know. I'm like, you, Thursday nights, bravo on. I'm sure you already know who she is. Popcorn anybody, in hand. Exactly. Yes. And feeling bad about it while mm -hmm. eating it. Yes. But for anybody who doesn't know who she is, to sort of go through that a little bit, her most recent claim to fame is that she's one of the newest judges on Project Runway. Uh, before that, what she's definitely more notable for is that she was the editor of Teen Vogue when it went from being a regular sort of Vogue light for teenagers that sort of did everything the magazine industry expected of a magazine like that and turned it into a cultural icon and started talking about diversity and stuff like that. And let's uh, talk about that a bit yeah. because that shift was both remarkable and timely yeah. right at the time when it seemed like you know, one part of pop culture was plunging into superficiality at you know at a an incredible velocity. Teen Vogue went 180 degrees in the other direction, and while they were you know still doing fashion and lipstick and all the yeah. other things, were also um, raising political awareness and raising um, just sort of the bar on what uh, a magazine dedicated to young women could be. Yeah. And she really was the spearhead behind that. She went in and became, you know, it was very important to be the first black editor of a major magazine and came in and said that Teen Vogue didn't need to be this way. She understood that teenagers, particularly young girls, had things they were interested in like fashion and makeup, but also felt things were incredibly important and that you could talk about both of them at the same time. And you could talk about body diversity and cultural diversity and making sure people saw themselves in a magazine. So the reason I initially picked up this book is because I knew of that shift. I thought it was fascinating. And then I also know that literally not even a full year after that, Condé Nast decided to stop printing Teen Vogue entirely. Right. Even though it was becoming the magazine everybody thought magazines should be. So I really wanted to read it, partly, partly just because I wanted the gossip of like, wh what happened? Why did they make that choice? That feels like a mistake. Yeah. Um, but I was really surprised when I picked up this book because it's actually a memoir more of her life. And so a lot of the very beginning is her you know, growing up as a mixed race girl, what that meant for the town she grew up in that was predominantly white, how she sort of lived through her life there and what she learned. And then isn't really until she hits past university that it starts becoming a little bit more of the business memoir you might expect that mm -hmm. starts to feel a little bit more inspirational. And it's a little bit more about how to bring your whole self to a table at work and how to make space for yourself and to say the things you know are important. 
and talking about her experiences of saying, you know, when is an amazing opportunity amazing, but not amazing for you? And how do you turn down something fantastic? So it's really interesting because it goes through all those stages in her life and it feels sometimes almost like two completely separate books in that way. And so it, it does sound like we have a memoir piece, then we have a business memoir of yeah. how I did it, how I, how I accomplished these things. But then it also sounds like that mix of career and self-help of what's the career for you? What's the, what's the right way to make a decision? How do you, how do you accomplish and persevere in difficult workplaces and interesting environments. Yeah, and it definitely captures all those things. I think she describes it as a memoir slash manifesto. Um, and I think that's probably Excellent. a Excellent, I fairly, love a good manifesto. Yeah, who doesn't want to just sit down and read one? But I think it covers that really well. And it's very accessible reading, which I think is great. Um, because it covers all those things, I think people from any background can come into it. You can come into it because you're interested in business and you want to know how to find your space and how to be able to speak confidently and learn from somebody who conquered something that seemed amazing and almost impossible. Like a lot of us aren't going to be sitting across the board of directors at Condé Nast, but I think it can feel like that a lot when we're talking to bosses and people above us about things. Um, so coming that, but also anyone who's just interested in fashion, anyone who likes celebrity bios is probably going to love a book like this because it reads very much like those things. And, and so who would you buy this book for? Like, who's the, who's the person in your mind that you think of when you think about giving this as a gift? I think the core of it is definitely any women in your life who are very career-focused and very career-oriented. I think there's a natural sort of fit in that. I think a lot of people can see themselves in Elaine Welteroth quite a bit. So anyone, I think, particularly very important for younger girls who are probably trying to look to find themselves, anyone in your life that's maybe in the, like, 17 to 25 or later range that wants to figure out like who are they going to be and how are they going to get to it um but even somebody who's a little bit older you know i recommended this book to my mother who it turns 60 next year but i think is still someone who is learning the lesson that you belong at any table you choose to sit at and so this is a great book for anyone who could value in that lesson so that's more than enough by elaine waltroth yeah. thanks so much thank you very much Hello, I am Nastaran Bishoban, VP of uh, Global Technology Delivery at Rakuten Kobo. Uh, we build software that is empowering Kobo's reading. And what is the one book that you think people need to either buy for someone else or buy for themselves this Does holiday trilogy season? trilogy count? <laughs> <laughs> sure, a trilogy counts. We love trilogies. So uh, I want to actually uh, uh, introduce to our readers uh, and listeners uh, a trilogy called a Century Trilogy by Ken Follett. This is this gigantic historical epic uh, story that uh, Kim Follett with his master storytelling uh, technique is taking us into the inextricably entangled five interrelated families. And where and when is this set? Oh, it takes you from London to Berlin, to New York, to Washington DC, to Moscow, to Prague, to Havana, and to Warsaw. It's all over the map and you would be surprised how beautifully uh, at some point they are all interrelated and you have moments in the book that say ah that's that person that i was reading about it it's amazing to see how the start of the first book is fall of giants mm -hmm. uh, it starts and, and what year is it set in 
It starts with uh, stories around World War One. Okay. Uh, five different uh, um, uh, interrelated families coming from uh, lens of a 13-year-old uh, Welsh boy uh, who is working in uh, mining. And then you will see uh, another, you know, person uh, that is highlighted from the different uh, family in the group, uh, an aristocrat that uh, is exploring some forbidden area of falling in love with a German spy, uh, English uh, aristocrat, you know, falling in love with a German spy. Then it takes you basically from a, a First World War to Russian Revolution, to struggle of uh, women's suffrage, and it has it all. Basically, it talks about the excitement of war, revolution, what is come after it, not excitement about war, exciting, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, area around uh, how people can still survive and look into the human side of everything around themselves. It will uh, take you to uh, cross deep into the different territories that normally uh, you won't expect from a historical novel. But Ken Follett uh, is taking you to multiple area of uh, uh, everything for every kind of like mind uh, that you might think of. And so who's the person that you would buy this book for? Any history buff person, mm -hmm. anyone who would think that, gosh, this year I'm not going anywhere. So they will enjoy <laughs> reading this in through their, uh, you know, holiday time. Because each of these books is 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 long too. Like they're, it is yeah, long. Yeah. Believe me, if someone is using this as an audiobook, you will miss your turn when you are listening and driving. Uh, this is uh, take. This will take you to a very different world. And um, the storytelling is mesmerizing. Uh, Kim Follett is master storyteller. Actually, one of the favorite of Queen Elizabeth uh, author as well. Uh, okay, there's an endorsement that you don't get every day. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, she is a big fan of Ken Follett. And uh, I believe through this trilogy, Fall of Giants, Winter of the World, and Edge of Eternity in order, he gives you a view to a century that you didn't think uh, you would know it this way through the life of the people that have been involved into a turmoil of the time, uh, beginning of the rise of a Third Reich, through the great dramas of the World War II, and then taking the families to civil rights, assassination, impeachment of the you know U.S. Uh, uh, president at the time taking the time between 1960s to 1980s. So the author actually literally takes you through three generations with three uh, these three books, uh, starting from World War II, uh, the parents that will consider grandparents of the third books, uh, basically generation, and it will take you to a level that you can relate and at the same time opens your eyes with a lot of historical facts. And who is another author who would be like a bridge to Ken Follett? Is it too bad if I say I haven't read anyone with this kind of technique mm -hmm. that can take you with a well-researched uh, historical event and mix it with a story that you definitely miss cooking dinner for and you will miss your day-to-day -day activities? A little bit Dan Brown on some of his, uh, um, you know, books that will take you through art and history. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one is longer with a wider net 
of covering different variety of like and dislikes. Excellent. Nestor, and thank you so much. Pleasure. My name is Deandra, and I am the Content Marketing Specialist for Canada here at Kobo. Tell us all about your book. Uh, the book I cannot stop recommending is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Um, it is absolutely the best book I read this year. And tell me about it. Fiction, nonfiction, what's it like? What's inside it? Well, it is, I would say, genre bending. Okay. Um, it is a biography, um, or a, sorry, a memoir, uh, recounting an abusive relationship that Machado was in. But each section of the book plays with a different genre or stereotype or trope. Um, so you have a haunted house chapter, and you have a choose your own adventure chapter. Um, so you get to experience every different kind of genre throughout this whole book. And is it? Is it a single story all the way through? Is it a series of linked episodes? How is linked it? Linked episodes okay. more than a single story. It kind of tells the story of this relationship through the ups and downs, but they are just different scenarios. And you could read it potentially out of order if you wanted to. You don't need okay. to necessarily read it in order, but it really you can't you can't put it down once you pick it up, though. That's the only problem. And so, give me a sense of the tone and feel of it, because uh, yeah, the topic is hard it is and yet the it seems like she's she's playing with form mm -hmm. and structure mm -hmm. yeah so it is a very serious subject matter obviously and uh the tone itself is quite dark and serious but then she is such a talented writer that there are definitely moments of levity and uh i laughed as well as cried mm -hmm. um so you will feel everything um but it is definitely more on the serious side of things and who, who would you give this book to? Like, who's the person who would look at those mm -hmm. uh, changes and shifts in tone and storytelling and the kind of topic that it is and go, oh, yeah, this is the book that I want to sit down and read? I think the avid reader, someone who has already read everything and you don't know what, what could they possibly need to read next. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a that's actually a really good category because yeah. there are those people out there like, oh, you've read everything. Yeah, the, exactly. It's like, oh, they've read all of the bestsellers. They've read every, they read every genre, so I don't know what to get them. Like, they could, I could pick up any You're book. Like, ah, ah you haven't read this. Exactly. Okay, got it. <laughs> and um, is there another author out there or another book that's comparable that would give you a bridge between this uh, to this one? I was trying to think of whether there was something comparable, and honestly, there's just not been anything done like this before. It okay. is so unique that I don't know if there would be anything similar to it. Um, if I was forced into a corner and had sure. to pick someone, yes. I would say maybe um, a Lindy West or the uh, Jenny Slate just released a nonfiction book as well, and that one is a little bit different and weird, so it's called Little Weirds. Um, so maybe those books, but quite honestly, this kind of stands alone. And so that that is what makes it great for that person who exactly. is the true broad reading literary mm -hmm. aficionado is um, they're going to get a surprise in terms of how the book is put together. They're going to get a topic that is yeah, deep and serious and yes. you you know you can you can really get immersed in um, but it's not going to be like anything that they've pulled off the shelf before exactly amazing thank you so much thank you and that is uh in the dream house by carmen maria machado yes. 
I'm Nathan Maharaj. I'm Senior Director of Audiobooks and Subscription Lifecycle Marketing. Uh, my team focuses on helping customers get the most from their audiobooks and ebook subscriptions. And tell us about you have two books. I you, do. You've, you've actually exceeded. You've overperformed. When so, the call came out, I, I, I had to overdeliver. All right. So tell us book number one. Okay. Um, the first book I'm recommending is The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs by Steve Brissotti. Um, Full disclosure, I'm very into dinosaurs, so there's a certain bar set here. But uh, and you and you also have kids at home who are hyper dinosaur aware. We, very much so. Like there, we 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 look at maps of the Earth, uh, you know, 70 million years ago, and talk about which where you find which dinosaurs and and how we know what and 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 all of the wonderful biodiversity and 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 my children greet birds with uh, they say hello dinosaur. That's so that's the kind of family okay. I'm coming from. Got it. That said, you don't have to be all in. This is this this is a book that I think fills a niche that's been that's been open for a while, which is a layperson's guide to what's going on with dinosaurs because there's been a lot and if you've if, if you're peripherally aware if 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 you um, um, uh, you know what I'll back it up and I'll say th what Brissotti he's a he's a real paleontologist he's not a science journalist he is uh, he works at the University of Edinburgh uh, he is American by birth um, and uh, what he's setting out to do is two things I think he's trying to humanize the science of paleontology so he focuses a lot on the people doing the work he's not skipping around the globe just talking about um, big teeth and horns he's he's spending time with individual paleontologists in China in South America in the University of Chicago in going into their work, what they know and how they've come to know it, and what whose work they've built on top of. And if you're like a lot of us, your your knowledge of the state of paleontology, the state of dinosaurs, you know, probably ended with the illustrated books that you read sometime between like you know seven and ten years old. Yeah. So, and you have a snapshot in your head of, okay, here's what dinosaurs are, and here's what they're called, and here's what they look like. But the state of the art has moved forward since then. It has moved immensely. We're actually in a golden age right now. In the last 20 years, uh, the number of species discovered has exploded. And, and Brusati gets into that. And where is it coming from? It's coming from a lot in China. There's a lot of research being done in, uh, in, uh, in, in Mongolia as well. Um, uh, it, it's South America opening up uh, a, a lot of research. Um, and so the, the field has blown up in a way that, you know, Personally, I think of my children who I love, you know, more than anything, but also who would not exist if I had made a slightly different choice as a young person and decided to, to double down on biology and follow through and become a paleontologist like I wanted to be when I was six, because it was actually not a not a crazy career arc given given my demographic. There there were jobs. There there are jobs, um, but I didn't. Instead, I instead I read this book. Um, what uh uh. What I, what I really what I would what I would really recommend this uh, the kind of reader I would recommend this to I think is the type of person who you know if you if you were if you in the eighties you had the the illustrated dinosaur book you you watched Jurassic Park you're into it it thrills you but you're also peripherally aware of is there a brontosaurus oh wait brontosaurus is back what was that all about <laughs> uh, if you right. if you maybe heard something about Triceratops suffering the same fate but but not or uh, if you've got questions yes. about feathers, yes, are feathers a thing? Yeah. What colors? Give yeah. Me, yes. Give yeah. me the give me the current state of understanding Absolutely. of dinosaur coverings. Right. I and, know. and 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 feathers, by the way, are are so established a fact it's not even an interesting debate. Dinosaurs are birds. There was feathers all over the place. 
just get used to it. That, that's how it was. Uh, I don't know what those things are in Jurassic Park. They're not really dinosaurs. They look awfully cold. <laughs> so <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And of... So, of the science writing out there, is, yeah. a, is there another book that, uh, that compares to this or that, uh, that you could use as a bridge? I, I wish there was. I wish there was. I've been hungering for exactly this kind of book for a while. I would say there's, uh, I mean, this is the kind of book that um, if you're generally interested in, in science, I, I have a hard time building a bridge to anything other than, you know, going all the way back to like Stephen Jay Gould or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but... Um, uh, so I would I would less link this to uh, to a particular book and more to a reader with with an interest in this field, who's looking for that vivid illustration of like these were animals on our planet at a time they didn't all mm -hmm. live at the same time they didn't all live in the same place they were real animals just like we have animals today that that was our world uh, you know 230 to 67 million years ago and to the scientists who are out there doing the digging, creating the theories, often fighting with each other about those theories. And the, um, I think in a lot of science books today, there is an author who is harvesting vast swaths of research and you never really get a sense of the scientists who are to toiling away, mm -hmm. you know, putting it all together. But this seems to bring those people quite vividly to the forefront. It does. He really does try to make that a focus um, and leave the, um, leave the horns and teeth to somebody else while spending as much time on that, I think, as he needs to, to really play it out. There is a chapter on the Tyrannosaurus Rex because by following that one species, you can learn a lot about um, about the geology that, that that goes into our understanding, about the the successive waves of researchers that have that have battled over this understanding, and then how how dinosaurs have impacted popular culture. So he's doing a lot in here. He's doing a lot, especially for for a guy whose job is to be a scientist, not a writer. He's juggling a lot and actually doing a pretty good job of it. So that's Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs by Steve Brissett. Second book. Second book. Second book is uh, is by Ted Chang. It's, his, it's only his second book. It's called Exhalation, and it's a, it's a book of stories. Ted Chang is a really unique writer. Um, his, his, by profession, he's a technical writer, which people always bring up. Uh, I'm only bringing up because uh, it is such a curious fact that, that he spends uh, all day writing for a living and yet has only produced two relatively brief collections of short stories. But... It, these are these are these are these are gems. These things he produces. He's uh, he's notionally a science fiction writer, but you kind of have to. It's almost like science fiction is a term you have to invent to describe his work. It's not about the genre of science fiction. Okay. It's not about lasers and spaceships or anything like that. It's um, he owes a little bit to you know probably more to Jorge Luis Borges than Isaac Asimov. Okay. But so it's like. Magical realism of the science fiction style. <laughs> yeah, kind of, but he's also kind of his own thing because because he can do the magical realist thing, but it's always um, it's less it's more like technological realism. That's kind of what I was trying right. to get to was take the magic out and put the science in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so uh, every because he writes short short stories, you spend a lot of time reading Ted Chiang, um, uh, getting your bearings. Where are we? What's going on? What's the thing that's in this world that's different from my world? Uh, the, um, you know, the first story in the collection uh, takes place in medieval Baghdad. And the conceit is, um, you know, it's got all of the, the classic oriental trappings of, 
of you know Western literature describing this place. But we go into the back room, and the and the exotic object is not is not a genie in a lamp or anything. It's a portal that travels across time, and and uh, and it does so in a very particular way that allows people to 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 converse with their future selves and allow their future selves to speak to their past selves, which creates an interest. All those all those things that would happen, except you know. There's no, there's no electricity. There's no, there's no digital recording. This is this is a medieval setting, but you can travel in you know years into the future, uh, and and what Ted always what Ted Chang is always focusing on is is um, how do people make decisions in a world that has this angle. Um, the standout story for me is more of a novella. Uh, it's called. Uh, I want it's a it's a it's a great title. I have to get the title exactly right. It is the life cycle of software objects, and it's about um, it's a it's a story about um, some folks who work in the in in technology who are working on artificial intelligence in these digital companions. They're just they're working at a gaming company essentially. They're making these digital companions and they're putting a lot of care into them. Uh, the way the way I think you know thousands of people working in the gaming industry put care into what they're making, except that these things are. I mean, are they sentient? Are they not? They certainly evoke the emotions. They cer it certainly feels like raising a a non-human toddler, kind they're, of a. They're passing bits of Turing tests. <laughs> they're passing bits. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a cross between like a, a toddler and a Pokemon mm -hmm. that they've created in this digital um, in this digital context. Except we we then add in things like there are the realities of capitalism. Like not every maker of these things is going to succeed, and there will be competing standards. So. What what happens when something that you've invested uh, hours and and love into is threatened with obsolescence? Oh, it's it's got everything. It's, it's got, got everything. It has parental instincts. Yeah. it's got you know, eth you know the ethics of AI. It's got uh, um, ob it's got obsolescence and <laughs> obsolescence as a childhood disease. Yes. And 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 then and then there's the humans of course it's because it's always Chang is always rooted in the humans. He never gets bogged down in the in the technology of it. It's always about how do people make decisions. And what's really interesting is the community that forms around um, having these uh, these 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 digital companions that are that are threatened with obsolescence that are increasingly difficult to keep alive in the sense that they are alive. And and the relationships that form between those people and how and how that creates tension and how that creates closeness and and all of the difficulties of that. And I uh, you know now I'm thinking about all of the the productivity apps that I've ever downloaded <laughs> and put on my phone and used for two months and then gone. Eh, yeah, I don't like the way the checkboxes work and then left them and like what if those were all. Yeah. What if they were sentient? What right. if they were sitting there going, maybe he'll come back one day? Right. And, okay. This, this sounds fantastic. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, we just talked about two stories. And this is the thing. Like, Chang is all about that. I, I can't even remember half of the stories that are in there because they, 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 it's, it's, it's a whole experience. And, and uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. And that is Exhalation Stories by Ted Chang. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank okay. you. Hi, it's Michael Tamlin. Third is the book that probably had the most personal impact on me this year, and it was one that we did a podcast on earlier, but I'm going to call it out again, is Jonathan Safran Foer's uh, We Are the Weather, Saving the World Begins at Breakfast. And it has been an incredible year for public attention on climate change, on the political conversation turning to, to what degree are we going to invest as a society in, uh, in saving 
the planet from climate change or Im, uh, mitigating the impacts of climate change. And th I think there is a real sense among a lot of people of, well, I don't, I don't know if there's anything I can do about this. And this book talks about some very uh, discreet and distinct things that an individual can do that probably make the greatest difference uh, that any individual can do in terms of how they impact climate change. Uh, we Are the Weather, Saving the World Begins at Breakfast by Jonathan Safran Foer. And it is for anyone who's interested in the environment, anybody who's interested or worried about climate change, anybody who feels like they need uh, not just to know about the problem, but to be able to grapple a bit with what are some possible solutions. And then the last one that I'll put forward is uh, a book that did more than anything else for me this year to change my sense of how American politics works. Uh, I, like a lot of people, have kind of the, a, a running snapshot of the the U.S. political situation, kind of going all the time, uh, and I can't pull myself away from uh, from news about what is certainly the greatest political drama of the century, and. Yet at the same time, I'm, I've been perplexed by oh, how did, how did the United States get to this place where, it is as polarized as it is, where there are these incredibly sharp divides, not just in terms of political parties, but in terms of fundamental values about what different citizens believe the country should be, and so, a lot of that started to be answered for me by a book called. American Nations by Colin Woodard. And he looks at U.S. history uh, not just as a chronology, but as a series of waves of settling and immigration over the course of the, you know, the first century of, uh, of the United States, and how that created both not just distinct regions of the country, but also very different senses of what the country is for and what a citizen's role in the country is, the, the values that are embedded in that. So rather than looking at individual states like Maine or New Hampshire or Massachusetts or Georgia, he looks at blocks of uh, the country and he sees there being 11 countries across the United States. Uh, and so he looks at New England and a region he calls Tidewater, which includes areas like Maryland and Virginia. Appalachia, which doesn't really conform to any one state, but is parts of a number of states uh, crossing through um, the U.S. sort of mid-east. Um, and the Deep South, which crosses obviously a number of states across the bottom of the United States. Um, but that each one of those was embedded with the values of the people who uh, first came there, and then they pulled those values with them as they expanded across the country. And from that, you get um, you get voting blocks that help to explain why some states are swing states, why some some states are reliably democratic, uh, or sorry, reliably democrat, why some are uh, dyed-in-the-wool Republicans, why individual counties uh, could be different from one county to the next, and uh, and then how that is played out on the electoral map across the centuries. And so that's American Nations by Colin Woodard. Uh, get it for that person who is 
the American history aficionado, that person who's read every book about the Civil War, that person who's deeply embedded in CNN or in CNBC or in Fox News and all of the uh, the raging drama that's taking place across the uh, the American political landscape. Uh, it is an entirely new look at how that landscape came to be. I'm Ben Dugas. I'm the product manager for Open Catalog at Kobo. And the book I'm recommending is The Mastermind, Drugs, period, Empire, period, Murder, period, Betrayal, period, by Evan Ratliff. So it wins on use of punctuation within a subtitle yeah. right out of the gate. Yeah. Tell me about this book. Why is it great? Okay. So I made notes because this is a doozy. Okay. Um, I thought I remembered the book, and then I went back to look at you know the Wikipedia for this guy, and I'm like, oh, I forgot about a lot of this. So it's... Fascinating because, um, so I'd read a lot and heard a lot about like the opioid crisis and it's always framed and probably kind of accurately so as like it's, you know, big pharma, it's people writing prescriptions they shouldn't, it's all kinds of other systematic cultural factors. What I had never heard about is that there is also this one single bad actor who probably more than anyone played a role in this as well as all kinds of other worldwide havoc. Who is this person? Okay, so his name is Paul LaRue um, and he started in... Um, Cryptocurrent, sorry, uh, encryption, encryption okay. technology, open source. He put out this thing, and then the open source didn't quite work the way he wanted it to, and he didn't get rich, and other people did. That's As maybe, often happens. Yeah, that's maybe not the most uncommon story, but where it goes from there is insane. So um, his next venture is he starts this business where he uh, consists of a call center in Israel, um, a series of uh, websites that look kind of legit, but are not really, and uh, connections, uh, business connections involving uh, pharmacists and doctors in the States. So basically he had this whole network where um, uh, patients could find these on the internet, would find ways to get uh, easy prescriptions issued to them by real doctors, and the doctors and the pharmacists would come to these portals and could just make a ton of money firing off these rapid prescriptions online. Seemingly legal, but not really. So I'm sure that's been done. But then the impressive thing about this scam is that he owned the whole tech stack. So he was really hard to shut down because he owned uh, the servers, the domain registries. If he couldn't get in one country, he'd go to another country he could. So you couldn't shut him down. You could shut down maybe a single website, but another would just pop up in its place. And so this then became in some of the infrastructure that powered the opioid crisis. Yes, yes. I'm sure it's not all on him, but basically he's this supervillain. It's like if you got a virus and it, it developed resistance because you had someone who had this background in tech as a programmer in encryption who then got into, um, you know, online pharmaceuticals and, and prescriptions. Got it. Yeah. And so give me a sense of the tone of the book. Is this an investigation? Is it an analysis? How, how would you describe it? It's kind of a biography, but it starts as a biography of, of Paul LaRue, but then it gets into the FBI investigators, his various teams of, of hitmen, people who worked for him in the call center, um, and, and branches off into all these different stories. The, the other parts, and not to spoil this, but he, in addition to the call center and that business, it, and it's similar, you see it with the um, encryption. He's not someone who, get, who finishes one project and says, okay, that's done, that's my career. He branched off into a million crazy things. He got into logging, uh, gold smuggling, arms dealing, uh, plots to overthrow various governments. Um, he had hitmen. Uh, he put hits out for some of his hitmen by other hitmen. So this is mining, this drug dealing. Is like 
he is a supervillain. He is. He should be in a hollowed out volcano somewhere. He, he is like the the yeah the modern supervillain. He's he's Anton Sugar or he's uh, Heisenberg. If Heisenberg also understood how to build a whole tech stack and and run an empire, and. Who would you get this book for if you were giving it to someone as a gift? Anyone who likes, uh, you know, if you like insane stories, if you like true crime, if you like reading about, you know, international drug empires. Um, it, it, so if you're interested in the subjects, but mainly if you just like twists where you think you know where the story is going, it's like, oh no, it's going here, and now it's going here, and now and it's now going logging, here. and yes. now the hitmen will have hitmen on them. Yes, yes, amazing. Yep. And is there another? book or another author out there who's who's like this? Yeah, so the other one, which um, wouldn't have been my main recommendation just because I had heard about it a lot, whereas this book I had not heard, I had heard about it on one podcast and that was it. I've not come across this book any other way. Uh, the more mainstream book this year that, that I think is connects to it is Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, um, which was also great and troubling and, and hilarious. Um, this was just more bizarre and a little more off the beaten path. So this this follows in the theme of smart people gone bad and then getting worse. Yes, and in crazy ways and at a scale that just seems inconceivable at the beginning of the book. And that is The Mastermind by Evan uh, Ratliff. Yes, yes. Amazing, thank you. Great. My name's Aaron Irulo and I'm a communications manager for Kobo. And tell us about your book. So, in a twist, because it's not normally something that I would read, I chose uh, Inside Out by Demi Moore. So Demi Moore is one of those people that I think we all think we know yes. in, in some way. But do we actually? Is this, uh, or did this book take us into a place that we would not expect to go? Well, to preface, because I think it's important, I, by no stretch, was a big Demi Moore fan. Um, but I was just kind of interested. I heard a lot about it on Howard Stern and such. Um, so I didn't feel like I knew her super well. I mean, I'm a fan of Ghost as much as anybody. But uh, Of course. But the, all of us took a pottery yes. class as the result of that book. Thank you. <laughs> That's the result of that film. <laughs> yes. um, and we all know, you know, she was married to Bruce Willis. She's not anymore. Um, but a lot happens. It's very interesting. I didn't know okay. the depths of it, of Demi. And uh, so give us some of the things that surprised you coming out of this book. Uh, something that you, uh, that you took from it that went, oh, okay, yeah, this is a great reason to read this book. Uh, well, a great reason... So many anecdotes come out of it. I read it on a plane, and then afterwards, I was just chatting about it, kind of probably to the irritation of everyone I was around. So you had a day or two of, um, you you really know a lot about Demi Moore. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god, you're so into it. And I was like, now I am, yes. Um, but things that are really interesting, she had a very dramatic childhood, troubled parents with dependency issues, and then she had them, and kind of getting into Hollywood, which we all know is rocky because of all movies yeah so and then just like funny silly things like her and bruce willis getting started i didn't know he was like really close with woody harrelson okay they were like a little pack and they traveled around together and i just found that entertaining it's cute. I, I like woody harrelson like yeah that should, that should be a buddy movie on its own <laughs> yeah i'd watch it and give me a sense of the of the tone of it like is it a, is it reflective is it funny is it incisive how would you describe it definitely reflective Mm -hmm. um, it kind of starts at a rocky point and then is like, how did we get here? And does it look back from the beginning until present? So the whole purpose is, how did I get to this point? And then digging through it. So. And did you, as a result of like just 
going deep into the life of, of Demi Moore now? Are you going back and re-watching the back catalog to give you a sense of, uh, now that you have this, you know, this deeper foundation on which to appreciate <laughs> the work? It's creating a super fan, is that what we're saying? <laughs> yes. Um, I actually haven't, but I feel like if I did, it, the context would be really interesting. Like, at one point she talks about, is it A Few Good Men where she's the lawyer? Mm -hmm. I think, yes. So uh, she was saying the directors are pushing for her and Tom Cruise to have a romantic situation. Mm -hmm. And the writers were like, it doesn't make any sense. We're not doing it. It doesn't fit with the plot. And they said, well, why do we make her a woman then? And oh. like, oh, man. So I think if I rewatched A Few Good Men, I'd be like, would it make sense if they got romantic? No. no. Would it make more <laughs> sense if Demi were punched a director? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so are there other biographies out there that you feel are comparable to this? Or that... Uh, um, or that, that have a linkage to you for this? So I thought about that. It's a bit tricky because I feel like anybody who likes to look at behind the scenes, kind mm -hmm. of a celebrity memoir, it's the same feel. They're taking you through something interesting that you think you kind of know because you know their name. And yes. then you go, oh, wow, you have depths like any other person. Wow, that's interesting. You're, you're a human being <laughs> with a real backstory yeah. and you're not just a People magazine article. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, that, and what I love about biographies like this when they're well done mm -hmm. is that we all sit around with this with this very thin skim of I know who this person is she dated Aston Kutcher like that's <laughs> and and somehow the like that's all I need to know um, yeah. and then these books are all about peeling that onion about here's how I got here and here's what that felt like and here's what that, you know, this is what happened to me after that breakup and that great role or that breakthrough or, you know, aging as a woman in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then whether you're a fan or not, you do come out with a bit more of a sense of a whole person. Yeah, absolutely. And so that is Inside Out by Demi Moore. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is the last episode of Cobone Conversation for 2019. Thank you for listening to our staff picks. We hope we've inspired you to read something new. Season two of Cobone Conversation will return in January. Until then, happy holidays and see you in the new year. That's it for this episode of Cobone Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com slash conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. <laughs>